Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, this is the first trading day of March, and the NASDAQ closed above 5,000 for the first time in 15 years. It was March 2000, the last time the Dow was, the NASDAQ rather, was above 5,000. But of course, by November of 2002, Right. Less than two years later, the uh, the market was 4,000 points lower. The, the Nasdaq was all the way down at about 1,100. It was an 80% collapse, right? The bubble burst. And now here we are 15 years later, back above 5,000, and everybody is convinced that this time it's different. And, you know, the most dangerous words in an investor's dictionary are this time it's different. But it, it really never is, although everybody thinks it is. You know, that's all I heard today on the various investment shows was why it's different this time. I even was on in a little bit debate today with a guy on a CNBC Asia, and they were telling me all the reasons why it's different this time, why it's not a bubble, because it's different this time. Well, the companies are different. There are different companies in the NASDAQ. The technology is different. It's revolutionary. It's game changing. It's cutting edge. It's, uh, you know, whatever, whatever they, words they were using. But, of course, they were using similar words 15 years ago. It's always different. There's always something about the current bubble that is different than the prior bubble. They're never identical. They're never carbon copies. But the one thing that is the same is there's always an excuse why this time it's different from all the other times, right? That all the other periods of exuberance and high valuations, uh, they were bubbles, but this one is different, right? And that's what they thought 15 years ago. It was a new era. It was the internet age, right? It was, this, everything was different. But that didn't stop the market from collapsing 80%. And now, of course, 
you have the same excuses made by the same type of delusional investors who don't want to admit that they're living in a bubble. Now, I would agree that I don't think the NASDAQ or technology in particular is as overvalued now as it was then, certainly compared to the rest of the market. But I think the market in general, not just the the NASDAQ or technology, but the Dow and the S&P, I think the whole market is a gigantic bubble. And I think the Fed has supplied a lot more air into the bubble this time than it did 15 years ago because it needed to. I mean, it didn't really need to, but to create the illusion of prosperity, it was forced to. I think the U.S. economy is so much more screwed up now than it was 15 years ago that it required a lot more air to inflate a bubble. And there are still going to be dramatic consequences for investors, for the economy, if and when this bubble does, in fact, burst. And the only way it won't burst is if the Federal Reserve decides it is literally too big to burst. And so it prints uh, endless amounts of money. The Fed was not prepared to do that. The Fed raised interest rates substantially uh, prior to the bursting of the 2000 bubble. It did the same thing going into 2008. This time, the Fed is threatening to raise interest rates, but I doubt that they will follow through with that threat because I don't think they want to supply the pin this time the way they did the last couple of times because the bubble is so much bigger, the fallout will be so much greater from the bubble popping. So instead, they're going to pretend uh, that they're going to raise rates uh, by talking about it, but but not actually doing it. Meanwhile, the market is continuing uh, to be exuberant about the prospects for higher stock prices. Uh, you know, and when they talk about technology, you know, they throw a lot of companies in here. I, the interview that I did today on, on CNBC Asia, the, the woman, one of the hosts was talking about Uber, you know, as a technology company. And, you know, it's not really a technology company. I mean, they use technology. They use an app, an application, uh, so they make use of technology in their business model. But they're not a tech company, right? It's a ride-sharing taxi company, right? It's a, it's a new way to uh, hire a taxi, to hire someone to drive you. But that's not technology. That's just a company making use of a technology. But that doesn't make them a tech company, right? Just because they use uh, technology in their business, but a lot of the companies like Uber are not part of the NASDAQ, right? These companies exist in the private equity arena. They're private companies, but they're still sporting uh, crazy valuations relative to their current income. Now, yes, there's a lot of people who believe that Uber will revolutionize the world. But again, people believe the same thing about a lot of companies that are no longer in business. And, you know, will the internet maybe make it easier for companies to compete with uh, traditional taxis and limousine companies? Yeah, sure. But maybe those traditional companies will adopt the same technology. Maybe governments will change. Maybe governments will crack down. There are a lot of governments that are cracking down on, on Uber right now. So you, you, you never know. But there are a lot of names. And, you know, I went over some of this in the most recent issue of my newsletter, which, again, if you don't subscribe to that, Uh, Just sign up for it on the YouTube channel. You can always just click on. We have a link to my newsletter. You can go to the shift uh, Europac.com and sign up uh, for the letter where I write 
you know, about the uh, the stock bubble and some of the examples of, uh, you know, crazy pie in the sky valuations. But, you know, the last time we saw stuff like this was in the 1999-2000 era. But of course, hey, this time it's different, right? Because these companies really have a lot of, uh, of, of promise that those companies didn't have back then. But of course, back then, everybody thought that these prom- problems were so promising. And of course, maybe 15 years from now, when there's another bubble, people will say, well, this is nothing like it was in 2015. I mean, these companies today, well, I mean, these really are game changers. These companies really are revolutionizing uh, the way business works. I mean, it's not like 2015, right? That's what they'll say. Because that's the same thing they're saying now about 2000. But of course, in 2000, they were saying the same thing about some prior era to to justify the level of the market. They always do that. You can never acknowledge. Now, you know, this guy that I was debating with on um, on CNBC today uh, was saying that, well, you know, but we're making money buying all these stocks. And I, you know, I don't doubt that. You know, you always make money buying stocks. Uh, you know, the problem is, do you keep the money when the bubble bursts? I mean, he said that, well, when it bursts, we'll get out and uh, we'll go the other way or we'll get short. And hey, more power to him if he can actually pull that off. But very few investors do. Most investors who were in the Nasdaq bubble uh, 15 years ago, they didn't know it was a bubble, so they never got out. And they lost all their profits. You know, that's the thing about bubbles. Right? And I, I made this point on, on CNBC, although I don't know if I got a chance to really finish it. But bubbles force you to make a, an important decision. Right? You, you can either look like a fool before they pop, or you can look like a fool after they pop. That's it. And why uh, do I say you, you have to look like a fool before they pop? Because you're the guy saying it's a bubble, it's irrational, and you're the one that's not buying the stocks. And as the bubble gets bigger and bigger, the people that spot the bubbles look like the fools because they're not in on the action. They're not making the money that everybody else is making. Then, of course, the bubble bursts and all the people that thought they were so smart end up looking real foolish because they've lost all their money. And all the people who were foolish before the bubble burst, then they look smart because now they end up with the money, right? They either were short and they make money or they're in a position to buy you know, stocks when other people are broke. But in that respect, this bubble is no different than any other. Everybody who's betting on it thinks they're a genius because they don't know it's a bubble. And anybody who recognizes it's a bubble looks like the fool because they're not making all the money that everybody else is making. This is how it is. But they don't keep score early, right? It's not like, you know, I won in a football game. I won the first quarter, you know, I won the second quarter, right? I mean, in the, in the playoffs, you know, Green Bay Packers, you know, if they if they kept score at the half, right, they 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 would have been in the Super Bowl. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many points you score in the first quarter or the second quarter. Well, look, I mean, look, look, look what happened in the fourth quarter of that game. Look what happened uh, with with Seattle. It did, did the fact that Seattle was down early in the game. No. Right. And so it, it doesn't matter. They don't they don't give out a trophy uh, for winning the first quarter. And the same thing in the stock market, right? You know, it, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It's how much money you keep. And most of the profits that people made on paper 15 years ago, they didn't keep. They all went away. And so the people who are so excited about the money they're making in the stock market, you know, they ought to remember that. 
you know, twice in the last 15 years, the market's been cut in half, not just the NASDAQ, the S&P, the Dow, twice in the last 15 years. Who says it can't happen a third time? You know, and what was typical about today's rally is that it came against the backdrop of weak economic data. We had four economic reports that came out today. One slightly beat expectations, but all the other three were decisively below expectations, and it paints a very bleak picture that nobody wants to recognize. And this data we came that came out today, you know, follows the horrible Chicago PMI that came out on Friday. I mentioned that in the video blog that I recorded last week. If you didn't uh, watch that, check it out on my YouTube channel. But the uh, February Chicago PMI was supposed to be 58.7, and it crashed to 45.8. It was the biggest monthly drop since October of 2008. You know, that's like the Lehman crisis days. And the level now of the Chicago PMI, we haven't had a level this low since June of 2009, the depth of the Great Recession. This is the number we just printed Friday. No one cares. But listen to today's numbers. We got January consumer spending. It was supposed to, um, I think it was supposed to be flat. And instead, it came out as minus 0.2. The interesting thing about the minus 0.2 is that it follows a minus 0.3 in December. So that is a monthly back-to-back decline in consumer spending. Now, the last time we had two months in a row where consumer spending went down, right, that was six years ago. Six years ago, again, during the Great Recession. That's how long you got to go back six years to find back-to-back monthly drops in consumer spending. We keep getting economic data that we haven't seen in this country since 2008, 2009. That ought to clue you into something, that the economy is not you know, at escape velocity, that it's not about to take off, that it's about to crash land. In fact, the savings rate jumped to a two-year high, 5.5%, which is still really low. It's just not as pathetically low as it was. And, you know, the fact that the savings rate is going up, that is a good thing in the long run. We need more savings. Remember, I also pointed out on my last video blog uh, in uh, Alan Greenspan's interview on CNBC on Thursday last week, He said that the biggest problem in the U.S. economy is a lack of savings. Now, I pointed out he blamed the lack of savings on Congress and absolved the Fed of their responsibility. I think the Fed is even more to blame than Congress, but they certainly share the blame for our low savings rate. So if the problem is the savings rate is too low, then an increase in the savings rate is a good thing, and it has to happen. And it does have to happen, and it needs to go up a lot more, but it won't go up a lot more because the government won't let it. Because whenever savings goes up, that means it's a disaster because you can't spend and save the same money. So if consumers are saving more, by definition, they will spend less. Now, that's a good thing when you're broke and have lots of debt. You need to spend less. But when you have a bubble economy, that's a bad thing. See, if you're trying to keep the bubble growing, if you're trying to postpone the day of reckoning, then you don't want consumers uh, saving, you want them piling on even more debt. The last thing you want them doing is saving. They, they need to keep on spending because that's the fuel that keeps the bubble going. You need consumers going deeper into debt, even though they have more debt than they can afford. 
The prudent thing is to stop the spending and paying back your debt, but they don't want prudence because that means there's some short-term pain as the economy has to adjust to the transition. But they don't want that. They just want to continue to pretend everything's okay. They want to keep the spending train going, and so people have to keep borrowing. But everybody who's betting on GDP growth, fueled by more consumption, when you look at this big drop, back-to-back drop in consumer spending, and the increase in the savings rate, which is only just beginning. It needs to go a lot higher. Spending needs to come down a lot, which means GDP has to come down a lot. But the government's not going to let that happen. So what do they have to do, right? They got to print more money. They got to do QE4. But of course, if consumers are spending less, what is that going to mean about corporate earnings? If you're depending on the consumer to buy your products, you better, you better you know, second guess that. What about all the inventories that's been building based on the expectation of consumer spending? Consumers are cutting back. They're, they're increasing their savings. I said they were going to do this with the gas money, right? People saved money on lower gas prices. They didn't rush out to spend the windfall because it wasn't a windfall. They were borrowing the money to buy gas in the first place. So they're just taking advantage of the fact that they don't have to borrow that money. And they're not going to go spend it someplace else. And in fact, even the increase in income, there was an increase in consumer income but it was less than expected. They were expecting up 0.4, and they got up 0.3. So everything was negative. Everything was weaker than expected in this number. We also got the February ISM Manufacturing Index. It fell for the fourth consecutive month. It only came in a little bit below estimates because it was expected to decline, and it just declined a little bit more than expected, but it's the fourth month in a row that this has happened, and it's now at the lowest level in 13 months. The trend is not good here. The other negative number that came out was construction spending. It was expected to rise by 0.3. Instead, it fell by 1.1. It fell three times as much as they thought it was going to go up. This was the biggest decline in eight months. Another bad sign for this bubble economy, that the air is coming out of it. Yet that didn't stop the stock market from surging. Right? It didn't stop uh, the Dow from making a new record close. The Dow was up, what, 155 points. We're almost at 18,300. 18,288 was the close. S&P 500, 2117. And the NASDAQ, 5,008. Right? It's not a record high, uh, but it is a psychological uh, you know, close above 5,000. Uh, it doesn't have that much further to go to make an all-time record. My guess is that it will. I mean, if I had a bet on it, I'd bet that the NASDAQ is going to go above the old record high. Could we hit 6,000? Yeah, sure. I don't know. I mean, makes as much sense as 5,000. So why not? You know, the key, what I'm, what I'm really concerned about is the foreign exchange market. The dollar was up again today. Gold was down. Gold was up eight bucks last night before any of this weak economic data came out, and it ended up down $8, a $16 sell-off on nothing but bad economic news because people are just piling into the U.S. stock market and they're piling into the dollar in order to buy those U.S. stocks because everybody is so wildly optimistic about the U.S. economy. And that's the thing that I think we have most in common with 15 years ago. It's the wild, unfounded, misguided optimism in the United States. Back then, everybody was confident. Remember Janet? I mean, uh, Alan Greenspan was still the maestro back then, right? He was, you know, knighted 
Everybody revered Alan Greenspan. Right? They had a lot of faith in the Fed. The dollar was much higher than it is now. The dollar index was 120 at its peak. You know, right now we're around not what 95 or something like that. Uh, it was it was 120. It was a mu- much higher level back then, and um, it was a new era. It was a new economy. I mean, we, our our stocks were all the rage. People were worried about Europe. They were worried about. Uh, Japan, right? Everybody wanted to buy the U.S. And and then the, uh, the bubble burst. And then, of course, we actually had you know, 2011. And, you know, back in the late 1990s, everybody was talking about budget surpluses, you know, the Clinton surpluses, surpluses as far as the eye can see. You know, what are we going to do with all these surpluses? People were actually talking about the fact that the national debt was going to be paid off. Like what were, what we were going to do when there were no more treasuries. The surpluses were going to be so big that there'd be no more treasuries available because they'd all be retired because of these huge surpluses that we thought were going to happen, you know, into the future. Instead, we're standing up with an 18 trillion dollar debt, far bigger than anything that could have possibly been contemplated. But the reality is as misguided as people were 15 years ago, as wrong as they were about you know, the future of budget surpluses and the new economy and the new era and the fact that the Nasdaq, which was at 5,000, everybody thought it was going to go to 10,000 when it was at 5,000. Nobody said it was going down to 1,000. They all thought it would go to 10,000 or more. People thought the Nasdaq was going to surpass the Dow. The one thing that we have in common the most is not the only thing. There's a lot that's in common between now and then. But I think the one thing that we that is the most reminiscent is this false confidence in the U.S. economy and the Federal Reserve. The fact that people have all this faith in Janet Yellen, that they believe this is real, that they believe a bubble is, is reality, that they think the Fed can do no wrong, that they think the U.S. economy is in great shape, they believe the Fed can raise interest rates and normalize their balance sheet. That's just as insane as thinking we were going to have all these budget surpluses. Look, just because we had a couple of surpluses under Clinton, and of course I had to cook the books to get that, why would people anticipate, extrapolate all these surpluses into the future? Now, of course, back then, I was saying the same stuff. I was pointing out the fallacies of all these arguments, all these bubble arguments uh, in the late 1990s, and very few people listened to me, uh, but I was vindicated. I just didn't have the, uh, the television platform that I had later uh, when I was publicizing my book and I was warning about the, the real estate bubble and the subprime and all that. But I was saying to anybody who would listen to me, mostly talking to individual clients and prospects on the telephone about these things. Um, but now, 15 years later, it, it's exactly the same. And in fact, I think it's worse. I think the U.S. economy has never been in worse shape than it is now. I think the situations are far more dire now than it was 15 years ago. And the only thing is, it's so bad that we might not have the collapse that we had because the central bank can be so afraid of pricking this bubble that it doesn't, right? That we don't raise rates like the Fed is promising. I mean, if the Fed did raise rates, the markets would collapse. But they may be so fearful of that that they're not going to do it. And of course, with the economy on the verge of recession, right? it was heading that way in 2000, but interest rates were already you know, at 5 6%, whatever they were when that bubble burst. And now they're still at zero. They haven't even, you know, they haven't even started to raise them yet. So I think the, the economy and the markets rest on much 
uh, uh, less firm footing than they did back then. I mean, I think I think the foundation is is even more uh, you know granular and sandy, you know, than it was then. So there's a lot to be concerned about. And if the Fed decides that you know what this bubble is too big to burst, we cannot allow this to happen because we've now made it so big that we can't raise rates. We got to do QE4. Then, you know, what we are going to end up having is a collapse in the dollar. But it's one or the other. The Fed's going to have to make a choice. The government's going to accuse which bubble do we prick, the dollar bubble or the stock market bubble. Now, maybe they end up pricking both. Who knows? But something's going to happen. Something's got to go wrong. And the fact that you have all this complacency at a level of the NASDAQ uh, that we haven't achieved but once. And of course, again, we, we achieved it 15 years ago, and then the market was down 80% in under two years. And then the market got propped up again. It didn't get back up to 5,000, but then it got halved. I mean, we've had two situations where the market's been halved in the last 15 years. And every time, uh, people are complacent at the highs, and, uh, and then they're surprised by what happens. So here we are again. And we're either going to get a big market collapse or we're going to get a dollar collapse or we're going to get both. But that doesn't mean it's going to collapse today because the market rallied on all this bad news. All this bad economic news came out. The market rallied. The dollar rallied. So it's irrational. It's going to it's the market's rallying no matter what the news is. It doesn't really matter. Now, we'll see what happens on Friday when we get the the non-farm payroll numbers. I mean, these numbers have tended to be good. Simply because, you know, when you transition from a full-time economy to a part-time economy, you end up creating more full-time, part-time jobs than full-time jobs that get destroyed. But why this hasn't sunk in? But, you know, if we really had all these jobs, why, are, why is consumer spending going down? It's because the jobs stink. It's because the pay is low. So creating a bunch of low-paying part-time jobs doesn't necessarily drive the economy. It doesn't drive consumer spending. It doesn't drive GDP. So Wall Street's going to have to stop fixating on the number of jobs and start looking at the character, the nature, and the quant- quality of the jobs that are being created. Created, But there is even a limit to this. At some point, we're going to stop creating crappy jobs, and we're going to start losing crappy jobs. You know, And, and, and then maybe you know, it's going to start hitting a fan when employers realize they can't even afford all the part-time people that they hired, and they start pink-slipping them. And of course, it's going to, you know, it's going to be a double edged sword because they had to hire more people when they were hiring part time people. But when it comes to laying people off and you're laying off a bunch of part timers as a punch as opposed to full timers, well, you got to lay off more people, too, to have the same amount of savings as far as your total hours of compensation. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? 
If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.